So things are changing. Can you feel the change coming? Do you remember the early days of the retreat when we first gathered here? All of that effort to let go of the everyday concerns, gather the energy, collect the mind, let go of the thoughts, to transform the way we were relating to ordinary reality and move into a different space. So at the beginning of the retreat, there's this collecting energy. We come into the retreat space, the container, and now we're on the other side of it. It all starts to fall apart. The conditions change again, (laughs) and we move back into that space of more ordinary, familiar relationship to our lives. And that's fine. Both of those things are fine. Just changing conditions. We watch how they change as we move into retreat. We watch how they change as we move out of retreat. And neither end of the retreat is a problem. They're both learning experiences to see how the mind responds to different conditions, different challenges. So in a way, the retreat never ends. (laughs) You get to just keep going. It changes form, it changes context, it changes venue. But there's really just this ongoing retreat of our lives. But still we may find ourselves wondering, you know, what do we do with this experience that's happened here? You know, we've been living in this very contrived, artificial kind of way, you know, sitting, walking, in the silence and everything for eight days, nine days tomorrow. And it's been really difficult. I'm pretty confident in making that statement (laughs) for all of you. It's been challenging in many ways. And yet we have also really learned some important things. I'm also confident in making that statement, that all of us have learned important things during our time here. But where does it fit in to the rest of my life? It's important to remember, as I was saying, that this retreat is just a small part of a much larger endeavor, a much larger experience, a much larger process, the process of awakening, which includes everything, everything in our whole lives, this trajectory of this lifetime, possibly more in some views. But we can still fall into seeing the retreat experience as kind of the pinnacle of spiritual life that this is what it's really all about. This is where the real work happens and everything else that goes on out there is kind of not as important, kind of second rate. And this is not at all the view that the Buddha presented. It's not at all the view that we find in the teachings as they've come down to us. And it's not ultimately what we find in our own practice. If we keep at this long enough, we really start to see that this here, what happens here is just a small part of it. So instead, the appropriate framework for thinking about the big picture view of our practice is the fourth noble truth, the truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering, which the Buddha presented as the Eightfold Path. And at this point in the retreat, (laughs) we get into a kind of a mind frame where we're like, oh no, not another list, you know, I can't can't do another one of these. But the Eightfold Path is really so practical. You know, if there's one thing we really want to take with us, one understanding, one conceptual understanding we really want to take with us, this is arguably it. Because it really just lays it all out. What are the ingredients that make up a productive, a fruitful, and a satisfying spiritual life? So as Steve was saying this morning, there are times when we get stuck. You know, like Mahasiva in the story that I told. There's times when we get stuck in our practice and we need a teacher to point it out to us. We need that someone with that bigger view. But also to a large extent, during much of our lives, we can navigate our way with the, the help of this guideline of the, 
the Eightfold Path. If we're really sincerely walking the Eightfold Path, being mindful of its elements, paying attention to the various components of our spiritual life, then we can really only get so far off track. You know, we may get stuck, we may have lapses, but we can't really fall off track in a major way. It's going to keep us on the right path. So there are different elements to the Eightfold Path. The first one being a helpful understanding, an appropriate understanding, which just really means keeping the Dharma in mind, keeping these teachings in mind, keeping what you've learned here in mind, remembering them, reflecting on them, so that we develop a worldview that's consistent with the truth to the extent that we understand it. We think about our lives, we think about our plans, our activities, our memories, in a way that's consistent with reality, consistent with truth, consistent with the path that leads to the end of suffering. And each of us will find different ways of doing this in our lives. You know, some of us are very intellectually, academically inclined. We might do a lot of reading, study. Uh, you know, there's a wealth of uh, Dharma talks available online now. It's amazing. You can listen to, you know, a great Dharma talk every single night at home on the computer. Others of us maybe aren't so, you know, inclined in that direction of a lot of reading. So maybe it just takes more the form of wise reflection. Just thinking about the practice, keeping in mind the principles that we've learned, whatever's touched us or inspired us, whatever we've taken home, taken in, as being particularly important. It's really helpful, obviously, to have uh, a local community that we can connect with, a group we can attend to hear, hear the teachings, speak with other people of like-minded opinions, speak with other people that value this path, so that we can support each other and reinforce each other's understanding. So we each find our way of bringing skillful understanding into our lives, realizing that how we think about practice is important, how we think about our lives is important, and that's part of the path. And the next part is our skillful aspirations and intentions. And again, this takes the form of reflecting, remembering, committing. So it might involve, in a formal sense, doing some of the Brahma-vihara practices, keeping up the metta, the equanimity, other Brahma-vihara practices, intentionally strengthening the connection with that aspiration towards kindness, compassion. It might also include the conscious practice of dana, that practice of letting go of what we don't need, offering what we can for the benefit of others, cultivating a quality of heart that aspires to let go more and more of what's not helpful, what's not needed. And there are other less formal ways of bringing this aspect of the path into our lives. Just simply touching base with ourselves, maybe first thing in the morning, or when we sit down to do formal meditation, or at times when it, the situation gets challenging through that, throughout the day, just remembering what's really our deepest aspiration here. And connecting with that place in our hearts that really doesn't want to do harm, that really wants to nurture, that really wants to be healthy in relationship to our lives and to others. And there's the whole practice of sila that Kamala spoke about last night, of skillful action, of non-harming in our actions and in our speech and in our livelihood and what we do to support ourselves and get what we need in the world. And this is really about the commitment not to cause harm. And again, we can bring this into our life in various ways. 
For some of us, we make a, a formal commitment or an explicit commitment to the five precepts, the same ones that we keep here, adapted for life outside. You know, so here we practice uh, skillful speech by basically not speaking, <laughs> which is not what we do in the outside world. But to make the commitment to be as skillful as possible in our speech, to avoid harming, to avoid really messing up in what we say. And the Buddha gave us a few guidelines for this. He said the first thing we should pay attention to or reflect on is just simply the truthfulness of what we say, just basic honesty. You know, this is, it seems very straightforward, but we all know in practice, you know, really being honest, being straightforward uh, can be a challenge. And that's an area of our lives to bring attention to. But yet it's really fundamental because if we're not being honest in the simplest way externally with each other, then how can we really be honest with ourselves about the truth of what we find in our hearts and minds? It's not like we can kind of pick and choose where we're going to be honest, where we're going to be truthful. It's pervasive. Just as it, is, as it is externally, so it will be internally. So we want to do everything that we can to support our, abil our ability to really recognize what's true to the best of our knowledge. Right speech also includes paying attention to when we're getting drawn into speech that could be divisive, that could cause bad feelings between others, you know, gossiping, slandering, backstabbing. You know, we all are so tempted to kind of, you know, so-and-so, you know, da, 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 and did you know they said that about you? And, you know, that kind of speech. It just comes so naturally. And yet if we think about it, it's dividing people. It's creating bad feelings, creating bad vibes between people. It's another form of harm. So to realize that, refraining from harsh speech, which this is fairly obvious, you know, the yelling, the berating, the nagging, the complaining, all of these forms of speech that are just really, you know, a form of verbal aggression. And it's not, you know, that we're going to be perfect in this. It's not that we're always going to be speaking like a Buddha. But we can at least hold it as an aspiration. We can make a commitment to it as much as possible. And then finally, and this one's really interesting, to pay attention to areas of idle speech in our lives. Just kind of idle chit-chat, chatter. We're kind of shooting the breeze, passing the time really looking just for pleasure from the speech. There's not any productive quality to the speech. It's not actually serving any purpose. We're just kind of indulging our desire for pleasant social contact. Something to pay attention to. So in all these ways, we make our commitment to right action, to living skillfully in the world and avoiding harm as much as possible. And the last element of the Eightfold Path is uh, what's called the samadhi training. And this falls more within the medita meditative realm, the skills that we're specifically developing here. So the practice of skillful effort, which applies just as much in the outside world in our ordinary activities as it does here on the cushion. The practice of skillful concentration and skillful mindfulness, awareness. You know, we practice them here in this very specialized way. But just as much, those are things that we can bring into our ordinary activities out in the world. So at home or with a group, you know, every day, every week, it's really supportive if we can carve out the time to continue our formal practice, to keep that thread of connection with this space of going inward, of being really deeply connected with our inner experience. That's something that we practice, and it takes 
ongoing connection on that level to, to maintain the connection, to keep the door open to that inner self where we can connect with the thoughts, the feelings, touch into the deeper experience and be with ourselves. And of course, then, you know, when conditions permit, if the desire is there, coming back for retreat again, to reconnect here, you know, to take this very precious time, as you all have, to connect on a deep level, really take the practice to another level so that the, the, the insight can arise, the wisdom can arrive, we can deepen in our understanding in a, in a powerful way, as you've all seen here. And then practice just in our general activities, which is really the bulk of our practice. You know, most of the time in our lives, we're not sitting or walking, you know, in formal meditation, you know, highly concentrated, highly mindful, completely silent. That's not how we live our lives. So it's just really about remembering to pay attention, making that effort, that skillful effort to remind ourselves as we go through, our, through the day to connect with what's happening, to be aware and recognize what's happening, just as we do here. Noticing when wholesome and unwholesome states of mind are arising, being honest with ourselves about that again, recognizing when there are moments of anger, moments of fear, moments of longing, moments of craving, recognizing when there are moments of peace, moments of calm, moments of kindness, moments of generosity. All these things arise in our lives, and with practice, we can start to notice those just as we go through our day. And just as here, the idea is not to try to force the wholesome states of mind, to try to kind of create what we feel is a a spiritual kind of attitude in our lives. It's just about the honesty and the clear seeing, just recognizing what's coming up, remembering to pay attention. The word for sati, for mindfulness, is derived from the word for, for remembering, to remember. So, so much of this practice is just remembering. And through all these other things that we do on the path, that supports that remembering, so that more and more becomes a habit to look at our lives in that way. So once we're comfortable with this this eightfold path, with what it encompasses, then it can become a touchstone for our lives, something that we check back in with on a regular basis. How am I working in different areas? Are there areas where I could maybe bring more attention? or where I need to find new ways, get more creative about ways to juice it up a little bit, make it compelling, make it real for me. And there are as many different ways of doing that as there are yogis. You know, We're each going to find our own unique path for doing that. So if we're sincere in our spiritual practice, then we will have what's called wholesome desire, chanda, to walk this eightfold path to the best of our ability. And we'll also, of course, recognize that our understanding is not yet perfect, that our lives are complicated. And so it's natural to have fears about not doing it right, about messing up. And we may worry that we can't do it right, or there are, that there are impediments that are going to get in our way. And the Buddha taught that there are appropriate concerns and inappropriate concerns in spiritual life. And he gave us some guidelines about what is and isn't reasonable to worry about. So for example, people often have concerns in relation to the second noble truth, that one that's expressed as desires the root of all suffering. 
So it's very common for people to think things like, you know, well, I'm in love, or I'm in a sexual relationship. I'm still interested in romance and sex, and that involves so much desire. So how can I walk this path? Don't I have to give those things up in order to walk this path? Or I'm caring for my family, and I'm devoted to them. That takes so much time and so much responsibility. There's so much desire there. How can I really walk this path when I'm involved with those things? Or I have a career or a project or a cause that I'm passionate about and that I'm really involved in, and I don't want to give that up. It involves so much desire, so how can I walk this path? Or even just things like, you know, I really like to be comfortable. I really like to enjoy my life. Or I have a, you know, a beautiful home, I have beautiful things. I like to travel, I like to create music or art. I like to be with my friends and do fun things. I like to make enough money so that I can do and have what I want. You know, this is so much desire, so how can I walk this path when there are all these sources of desire in my life? But the Buddha taught that all of these things are really misplaced fears, inappropriate fears, unhelpful concerns. And this teaching is presented in this little um, Burmese book that I have that somebody gave me once as a gift. It's printed on like, you know, newsprint. <laughs> it's like falling apart. But I consult it a lot because it's got these really little pithy teachings in it that are presented in quite a quaint kind of a way. So it gives a whole list of things that we don't need to be concerned about in spiritual life, which is really helpful to know. <laughs> because it can seem like the list is just endless, right, of things we should be concerned about. But so like one of the things that it includes is that we shouldn't be worried about what it calls boy meets girl, <laughs> or which could just as easily be, you know, boy meets boy or girl meets girl or whatever the case might be. But just, you know, falling in love, being in love, being in relationship. It's on this list of things that we don't need to worry about in spiritual life. It's not inherently an impediment. That list also includes things like uh, working, having livelihood, having a career, earning money, whether it's a little or a lot. We don't need to worry if it's a little, we don't need to worry if it's a lot. <laughs> being engaged in trade and commerce, so just kind of dealing in the realm of money and material things, material matters. Being involved with courts and litigation, so being involved in kind of the community process, the governance process. So all of these various aspects of engaging with the society that we live in are not inherently barriers or obstacles, things that we need to be concerned about. They're just part of life. And then it also includes really basic things like eating, sleeping, making love. So just meeting all of the basic natural human needs that we all have. Those aren't things we need to worry about. So we can get the idea that these kinds of things somehow aren't really spiritual, you know, that they're not part of the path. But really, we don't need to worry about them. But if we do worry about them, you know, worries may arise, concerns may arise, those thoughts will do. And when they do, we just simply need to recognize those for what they are, thoughts, aversion, craving, worry, anxiety, whatever they might be. On the other hand, the Buddha also said that there are things there are aspects of our lives that it's very appropriate and helpful to be concerned about 
even to the point of feeling fearful about them. And these are all of the things that Kamala spoke about last night as falling within the realm of Hiri and Otapa, the wholesome, wise forms of apprehension that really stem from our healthy desire to protect our self-esteem and to protect those around us and ourselves and the community that we live in from harm. So the Buddha said that we really should be concerned about the defilements, about greed, hatred, and delusion. That's what we really have to worry about. We should really be concerned about them running around unnoticed and unchecked in our minds. So not simply about them arising. When conditions come together, they'll arise. That's normal. That's natural. But what we should be quite concerned about is that they arise without us seeing them and that they then get acted out without awareness and without restraint. And the practices laid out in the Eightfold Path directly address these valid, helpful fears. So with support from skillful understanding, understanding of what the defilements are, how they feel, how they operate in the mind, and with with support from the samadhi portion of the path, making the effort to bring in awareness and connection with our mental states throughout the day, then we can protect ourselves as much as possible from the defilements going unnoticed. That combination of wisdom and attention acts to defend, to detect the defilements when they arise. And the more that we practice that, the more of a habit becomes to where we don't always need to make such of an effort. It doesn't always need to be so conscious. Instead, we have more of a visceral sense in the body, in the mind, of when we're contracted, when there's that tight energy of reactivity, and we get a chance to get familiar with that sitting here in the silence, what it really feels like when we're in the grip of a hindrance, in the grip of an unwholesome mental state. So we can just feel, you know, maybe even before we become fully conscious of it, that something's not right in the heart, that we're out of balance, and that sends up kind of a red flag in our minds so that we notice it. The awareness can then kick in to detect it. Then with the practice of skillful aspiration, you know, our skillful intention, aspiration not to cause harm, and with the support from the sila portion of the path, that commitment to practice restraint in the face of the defilements, not just to notice them, but really to modify how we act on them so as not to cause harm that we can protect ourselves and others as much as possible from the effect of those defilements manifesting in our behavior and speech. And again, this is something that the more we practice it, the more it becomes a habit, just like anything else. The more we do it, the more ingrained it becomes, the more automatic it becomes. So it might be in the beginning, or in the middle, (laughs) That, uh, the, that we have to really remind ourselves of our commitment to non-harming very strongly, very clearly, when we find ourselves in difficult situations, you know, over and over again, maybe making great effort to really refrain from saying that thing or doing that thing that really we know we're going to regret. But as we go on, then some basic level of non-harming becomes our default mode in relating to others. So that when the thought or the impulse to harm arises, 
as it will do, then the heart really recoils from it. It just draws back intuitively. And that's actually how Hiri and Otapa are experienced directly in our actual experience as, as we go through life. It's that feeling of a recoil, of shrinking back or stepping back in the heart, away from any unwholesome impulses that arise. And with practice, that impulse becomes more and more the default attitude of the heart and will protect us and others. So it's really extremely wholesome. So the bottom line is that we don't need to worry about being in love. We don't need to worry about being in relationships. We don't need to worry about having a family or a job or interests or having pleasure and enjoyment in our lives. What we need to worry about is not seeing the craving, aversion, and delusion that arise in connection with all of those things, that come as the baggage along with all of those things. But if we walk the Eightfold Path, then inevitably, more and more, we'll recognize those harmful forces and be able to relate to them with more and more wisdom and compassion. And this is the way, this is the path, this is the only way that we can really protect ourselves and others from the suffering that we all fear and long to be free from. So we wanted to leave also a little time for you guys now to uh, pitch all of those questions about taking the practice back into daily life. We know you have them. And uh, we'll try to field them as best we can. Uh, yes. <laughs> I don't think it's available on Amazon.com. <laughs> is there something you want to? I don't know. I don't know what that book is, but it's nice to have one. <laughs> I guess for now you'll have to be content with uh, my rendition of it. But I mean, the you know the. What's more important is the bigger message, you know, and we can kind of go down the checklist, you know, what this is what we should worry about, this is what we shouldn't worry about. But I mean, the basic message, and hopefully this has come through over the course of the week, is that it doesn't matter what's happening. You know, it's not about what's arising. It's not about getting or getting rid of any particular experience, any particular condition. It's about getting beyond all the conditions and cultivating a quality of heart and mind that relates to whatever's arising with wisdom and compassion. Because this is the, the clincher, right? Ultimately, if we're dependent on any conditions, any conditions in life, whether it's relationships, work, anything, where we live, who we're with, how we are, what our personalities are, if it's whatever we're dependent on, we're creating a barrier to our happiness because it won't always be so. It will change. You know, we see that here. So getting beyond the dependence on all of the conditions and finding a different place to place our faith, finding a different place to rest in a sense of well-being that, that transcends all of the conditions that's more in the quality of the heart and mind.
So that's kind of the, the message to really take away. And you know, as we all do more study, then we learn more about the teachings, and, and many of them are very helpful. But it's also important to keep in mind the bottom line and really where, where we're headed in the path. Tomorrow, uh, <laughs> do you have something you add? We'll, we'll, we'll try to put together. I mean, because there's, there's a lot out there, but I just haven't put it all together and compiled it. So. Do you have a, yeah. yeah, so tomorrow the resource room will be open. This will be a big bonanza. <laughs> you get to go in and look at books and read writing. And, um, but, but seriously, they have, a, they have a great collection in there. The, 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 the assortment of books that are in there has been given a lot of thought to, and they're really um, all terrific books on, on various of these subjects, the key teachings. And uh, so you can go in there and peruse and see uh, what kind of, you know, if you're intellectually inclined, what kind of hits, hits your buttons right now for what's, what's juicy and what's interesting. Yeah. I, I just want to mention the Buddha did speak to householders a lot. And he did give a lot of practical advice. So it's not like there aren't many sutras directed to the uh, householders and the household life. So you can do some research, and there's just a tremendous amount of uh, information available online if you want to do the research to find it. I know that there's one in there called uh, In the Words of the Buddha which is an anthology by Bhikkhu Bodhi, which has this great collection of just really the key core teachings, some of the most important suttas. So if you have an interest in that direction, that's a great place to start with the suttas. Yeah. Trying to see. <laughs> Trying to pick some faces that haven't had a chance to speak yet. But yeah, right there. understanding that I did with the help of what I've access to. Um, so that's the first question. The second question is, you've mentioned things online. Is there like a good housekeeping seal of approval that you, <laughs> you kind of say, you know, this is a good source, this is not so good. Yeah. Um, what was the first question? <laughs> yeah, it was about the accessibility of the book that you mentioned. Yeah. Because my struggle is then, and you read it, and the literal, what you read isn't really all of, like, it's not the wisdom. <laughs> That's why you got to come here. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, there's, you know, there's that level of kind of intellectual understanding, the conceptual framework. And for most of us, that's where we start. You know, that's where we have to start because that's the only place that we can kind of get our foot in the door. But then if we stay on that level, we haven't really walked the path. We haven't done the practice. You know, we've got to sit down on the cushion, go through our lives, bring, bring the Eightfold Path into play, and then the wisdom starts to emerge. Of what do these teachings really mean? You know, what's the actual experience of them? What's the actual relevance of them? So, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in your saying. There's no substitute for doing this. You know, it'd be nice if there were. You know, if we could just hand out a pamphlet, you know, <laughs> here's what you need. But it doesn't work that way. I, I think, you know, on that level of just how do you take the theory and what the Buddha said and put it in my home and my relationships. And there are a lot of uh, journals, contemporary journals, Buddhist journals, if you will, uh, that are helpful. Um, 
and they cover the whole spectrum of life, life in 21st century West. Uh, but I think for myself, the, the real rewarding work is to read what the Buddha said and reflect on it and see how you can bring that into your life and do the work. Just do the work to, you know what? You can read all the instructions we offered you. You can read all of the Dharma talks we gave you, but that's not gonna be the same as having an experience of really working it with your own mind like you've had here. So it's the same with householder type of practice. You can read all kinds of good suggestions of what to do, but you actually have to do it. You have to try it and find out what works, what doesn't work, and things like that. There was a compilation put together by Sharon Salzberg of teachers uh, that teach here at IMS. It was a benefit for Ram Das when he had his stroke. What's it called? <laughs> Voices of Dharma? Voices of Dharma or something like that. And there's a lot of good practical advice and suggestions in there. But if you don't try, you won't learn. If you do try, be prepared to make mistakes. We learn from our mistakes. And it's just, if you're paying attention, you'll learn more. Yeah. Did everybody hear the comment? <laughs> so the path is about avoiding additional suffering in our lives. Or? Right, and dukkha is dukkha. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, on, on both levels, you know, Steve was talking about dukkha operates on all sorts of levels. Yeah. Well, we can remember the Four Noble Truths, right? Yeah. Like Steve was saying, if the Buddha just stopped at the, second, at the first two Noble Truths, we'd be screwed. <laughs> but it's important to remember there are the third and the fourth Noble Truths. There is an end to suffering. There's a path that leads to the end of suffering. You know, so, so to balance it out, we're only, there's nothing we can do about dukkha. There's nothing that we can do about the fact that we get old, that we get sick, that we get die, that we have unpleasant experiences. But the, the suffering comes in, and to some extent it depends how you define suffering, but the suffering comes in when we struggle with that, when we want it to be otherwise. That's, that's one way of thinking about the second noble truth, the truth of craving. 
The suffering comes from wanting the world to be different than it is, from wanting it to operate differently than it does, so that we don't live in harmony and peace and equanimity with the way that things actually are. Once we bring our, our desires, our understanding, our, the way that we relate into harmony with how things actually are, then what is there to suffer? We're just living in the flow of life as it is. So it's, it's getting past the struggle. The, fourth no, the Four Noble Truths are kind of like stark reality, and it can, it can be really difficult to take it in and make kind of a, to come to terms with it. And I think that's really our path, the practice is to, to really cop to the fact that, you know, the truth of dukkha, you know, hello, you got to deal with it. And sometimes the starkness of it or the, the apparent, as you, as you put it, God, we're screwed. You know what? That's just an attitude. That's, an, that's just a perspective. And that, that perspective doesn't lead to peace and happiness. But it's where we often start. Holy crap. <laughs> you know, on the other hand, you've all, been, you've all been working with your challenges of mind and body. And even in the course of nine days, you see a shift in your relationship. You see less struggling, less non-acceptance, less uh, struggling. And so you can see that if in nine days you can have this much of a shift of mind and different understanding of the way things are, imagine a lifetime of practicing. Over the course of decades of practice, you really, we really do have a significant shift in perspective. You're looking at the same thing, but you see something different. And that's where liberation comes in your happiness or your personal happiness, if you will, is not dependent on the things in your life, whether it's birth, death, aging, relationships or not, money or not, careers or not. It's not, it's not whether they're there or not. It's how you're relating to everything. And it's all from your perspective. You know, you have, you make the relationship. That job doesn't make the relationship. That partner doesn't make the relationship. That money doesn't make the relationship. Your mind makes the relationship. Meditation is an inside job, is the work of the mind. There are people living in the world that are very happy, looking at the same world you're looking at. They're very happy, very fulfilled, very at ease, not struggling. Why? How? Well, they've done some inner work. Freed the mind from demands, expectations, struggle, and doing what they can to serve those who have not yet figured out the way to do that.
who plans for things to get worse, right? We plan for things to be better. For those of you who know Kamala and I, we've been in a relationship for about 15 years and uh, we got married last year. And it seems like, you know, we're kind of a permanent fixture. We're kind of an unchanging fixture. But it's only possible to maintain that illusion if, you, if we live with the moment-to-moment changingness within each one of us. So while there may be an appearance of stability, it's important to understand that that is an appearance of changing conditions being looked at in, a, in an aggregate form. And the same thing for your relationships from the inside out. Yes, you can have a safe, stable, permanent relationship that's changing all the time. Okay, there's one thing you will learn if, if you haven't already, that the spiritual path is a paradoxical path. There's just opposites are possible everywhere in the life of awareness. It just is. And so while we can think ourselves into really complex questions and insolvable uh, scenarios. When you're there and you're present, that's just the way it is. 
and it's, it's, it's actually much easier than thinking about it. So I would just say, live your life with awareness. No, no, don't be too worried about thinking about it, how you're going to do it. Yeah, we want to reflect and all, but still, in the moment, uh, nothing like awareness to find a creative solution. Get a blank piece of paper, put your name and your address and, and, and an email if you wish others to potentially contact you about that. Thank you. you know, there's a lot of resources online if you're, if you're computer savvy. Is there anybody who's not computer savvy? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know. I mean, is that I but but to you know take it it there is a lot sometimes there's too much online but uh, if you get a little more specific and and ask people that you do know then you're more likely to find a thread that's worth following and and also that we can still make our way in spiritual life you know if we can come here periodically touch base you know some of us are blessed with living in communities where there is local sangha and this particular tradition or whatever you know we feel like is our home base, others of us aren't. That's just more part of the conditions of our lives, and we're not uh, ultimately completely dependent on those. Maybe some conditions, like the presence of a community or sangha, aren't so supportive as we would like, but maybe other conditions can be strengthened then to accommodate. So at different points in our live, lives, we're you know, focusing more or less on different aspects of the path, and it doesn't have to be that everything is always optimal. Again, you know, that's really setting ourselves up for disappointment. So we can, we can work within the conditions that we have, whatever they might be. Okay, let me, let me, yeah, let me. You guys can take this uh, to offline tomorrow, you know, we'll have this, this great time. And it's the conditions where you're living that, you know, people that are familiar with those conditions yeah. that I kind of like particularly address. Yeah. 
Yeah. So tomorrow you guys will have a chance to connect with each other, you know, find out where you, where you coincide and share lots of good information about uh, resources and strategies that we all have. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's hard enough on retreat. Um, I'm, what I'm really curious about is um, some ways to, to work with it when I, when I get home. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm already realizing just identifying it is important, and obviously, since I have that name for it, perhaps maybe working with my aversions might be also helpful. <laughs> um, but if you could give me some further elucidation, that would be great. What's the torture? Um, physical, physical discomfort. It takes lots of forms. <laughs> um, it, it's um, you know, and, and sometimes I can go through and, and I can work and I can be curious and get acceptance and work through it. But then you know, it keeps coming back and it's you know a lot uh, low energy, so it's hard to you know keep functioning and, and so on and just staying with that and. And, and I see that what, how it affects my life a lot of times is when I have low energy, then I don't take as good care of myself as I could on a lot of levels. And, and I'm just wondering if there's any, any you know, particular way. The Buddha's answer to all of that, the first response is wise attention. Wise, wise attention. Pay attention. Just pay attention to the way things are because if we're not in touch with the way things are, we'll definitely be off struggling. And if we are attentive to the way things are with care and wisdom or understanding, then we'll do the best we can. And I think that this is, this is a more realistic goal. Do the best you can. Know that uh, you may not yet see that as satisfactory but if you keep practicing, eventually you'll see that's satisfactory. Um, our ideas of perfection are a huge, huge impediment to being uh, practical and realistically happy. You know, I am never going to be 35 again, you know, or 25. You know, and it took a few years of consciously letting go of all of these futures that I had imagined for myself, they're just not going to happen. <laughs> and to let go of some really, uh, you know, the stuff that we're hanging on to, whether it's ideas or beliefs or self-images, just go, you know, we need to do a kind of a, a spring cleaning of the attics of our life and just say, okay, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go because it's just not there. It's just not going to happen, whatever it is. And so a lot of, I, I see for myself, and I hear a little bit, you didn't say specifically, but I hear a little bit, you know, just hanging on to things that are um, not happening. Okay, so just in response to 
the inquiry, and let me just say that uh, we have a piece of land on Maui that we incorporated a nonprofit, bought a piece of land on Maui, and have been in the process of creating a Dharma sanctuary and hermitage. Uh, we've done a lot of infrastructure work, as you know, and uh, have only recently taking succeeded in making the first big first step, which is get a get our own water meter, which on Maui is major. Twelve years and a little more than a million dollars, and we got one. So now we can. <laughs> and it's not only it's not our whole million dollars, but we and our neighbors. Our share was. 260-something thousand. But with that, then we can apply for building permits. So we're, we're looking at that as the next phase. And it was just a week or 10 days ago that we got the water meter. So we're, you know, it's moving along. And the vision is that there will be, um, it's a small piece of land in a, in a, in a, a very rural area. Uh, and our intention is to just have a few cottages for individuals to come practice for, uh, I want to say sustained periods of time, but it's when people, you know, there's, there's a time when you outgrow nine-day retreats or even three-month retreats, and it's your time in your life to take six months or a year or two years and finish the job. That's what, that's what we hope will take place in our cottages. So it's that kind of, uh, it's not a retreat center. It's a place to go live to finish the, the path work that needs to be done. So a um, couple more years maybe. Then you can come, okay? <laughs> and thank you for supporting our vision. Yes. So we're about uh, done with our time for questions. And I just wanted to make a last comment, kind of adding on to what Steve was saying about making our best effort. You know, we, we sit up here and, and, you know, we talk about a very high ideal, kind of the high bar for practice and continuous awareness and constant attention and constant learning, you know, we kind of set the high bar. And then we tell you to just do your best, you know, and that can kind of sound a little bit like, oh, you know, poor little yogis, you just go and, you know, make the best effort you can and don't worry about it. Or we can hear it that way, even if it's not said that way. You know, like, okay, well, I'll do my best, but, you know, my best just really isn't that good. You know, we see ourselves falling down all over the place, not living up to our ideals, not living up to our expectations and standards. And so just really to remind ourselves that our best is great. If we go through life and we walk this path just as best as we can, with all of the mistakes, with all of the, the fail failures, with all the stumbling along the way, you know, Kamala was saying last night, chaitana is not small. Intention is not small. Aspiration, effort is not small. Those things really add up. And so our best is good enough. Our best is great. So to think of it in those terms, and just as Steve was saying, not to hold ourselves to some un unrealistic ideal, but to really to make this a real path, not to make it a fantasy, but to make it a real path that's right here, really in the immediacy of our lives, right within the very conditions of our lives. That's the only place it can happen. There's no other moment we can awaken. There's no other moment we can be free except this one that's right here in front of us. So just to remember that as we, we go and continue on our path. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.